Our text for today is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, the second chapter, which we heard read a few moments ago. I'll be showing verses on the screen, but if you would like to follow along in one of our church Bibles, the text is found on page 972. Page 972. Why is it that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia. Understanding, as we said last week, that most scholars believe that this was the very first book ever written for the New Testament and God's Word. Why is it that Paul wrote this letter? Well, quick Review, we talked about this last week. It's around 47 or 48 AD. Paul goes on his very first missionary journey to spread the good news of the death and the resurrection, the victory and the hope and the love and the joy that we have in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And one of the regions that he traveled through was a province of the Roman Empire called Galatia. It's modern-day Turkey. See that at the top of the map. And he went around preaching the good news of Jesus and starting congregation after congregation after congregation. And as he went on his way, after that great Holy Spirit-led success, a group of people came after Paul fairly quickly, maybe just months after Paul was there, and said, Paul has only told you half the story. That the real gospel is, yes, you are saved by Jesus but you are also saved by your ability to keep all of the Old Testament ceremonial law. That's all the various rituals and the rites. It means, gentlemen, you have to be circumcised. It means there are food that you can eat and food that you shall not eat. It means there are rituals of purification and washings. It means there's all the high holy days and the festivals and the sacrifices of the temple. That you were saved by Jesus, absolutely, but it's Jesus plus your ability to keep all of this ceremonial law of Moses of the Old Testament. Now what these uh, false teachers had missed was that the entire purpose of that ceremonial law, all of those holiness codes, and dietary codes, was a way that God was keeping his people, the Israelites and the Jewish people, as a distinct people separate from all of the pagan nations around them, keeping them as a unique and separate people. Why? So that the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, might be fulfilled, the offspring of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent, so that the Messiah would come. Now that the Messiah had come, the Christ was here, the purpose of that ceremonial law was no longer needed. They were saying it was Jesus plus all of this religious activity. When Paul heard news that the Galatians were believing this, he was so deeply troubled and upset because he knew that if you add anything to the gospel of grace, it ceases to be the gospel at all. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's by grace and grace alone. 
So he writes this letter to the Galatians and we see his beautiful summary of the gospel and his defense of the gospel. He talks about the power of the gospel in his own life as one who was violently persecuting the church until he came to know Jesus Christ and his grace. And now here in chapter 2, we see two things that the gospel brings into our life. Now, the gospel brings thousands and thousands of things, but there is at least two things that we see here in this text that the gospel brings into our life. First of all, that the gospel brings freedom, and secondly, that the gospel actually brings the future. The gospel brings freedom, and I mean real, true freedom into our life today, and the gospel brings the future. That is the future life we will have one day, and we can have it already in part, even now. So first of all, that the gospel brings freedom, and again, let me set this up. Chapter 2, Paul is continuing to share a little bit of his own story in the biography to these Christians in the region of Galatia. And here in chapter 2, he's telling the story of the second time he had visited Jerusalem, 14 years after he became a follower of Jesus Christ, 14 years after his conversion, he goes up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James and John and the leaders of the church, those apostles, those disciples who were there in Jerusalem, not because he needed their approval, because he had received the gospel from Christ himself. Rather, it was to make sure that they were all in alignment together, that he was preaching the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ and that they were preaching the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ and wonderfully he found that there was absolute unity and oneness but even as they were having these discussions and their time together there was this group of false teachers false brothers who were still trying to antagonize and say no it's Jesus plus all of this religious activity and this is where we pick up here in verse 4 Again, that the gospel brings freedom is what Paul is showing us here. He says, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that what? the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It's the truth of the gospel. Again, the gospel isn't the ethics of Jesus or following the examples of Jesus or the secret wisdom of Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus Christ has done. God giving himself for you, his death, his resurrection. It's the truth of that good news that brings freedom. Freedom, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. Now, how are we to understand this freedom? Well, a couple of ways. Uh, the one way of understanding the freedom that we have in Christ is truly freedom from the burden of the law. Freedom from legalism. Freedom from this idea that we have to do all these religious activities. Again, it's not Jesus plus keeping the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It's not Jesus plus uh, all of your good works. It's not Jesus plus the fact that you're here on Labor Day weekend. 
It's not Jesus plus and how amazing and strong your faith in. It's Jesus Christ alone. And we're free from that spiritual slavery of trying to earn somehow the love and the grace of God. It's yours. It's a gift. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. That's freedom. But there's another sense, a deeper sense, in which God's word speaks of our freedom, and we can compare and contrast that freedom to what the kind of modern Western secular understanding of freedom is. What would the modern Western secular world say that freedom is? I think it's something like this. That freedom is being free to do whatever you want to do. As long as what? We don't hurt somebody that we are free to do whatever we want to do as long as we don't hurt somebody. And I think most of our political debates between the political right or the political left is over this understanding of what it means to hurt somebody. I think generally either side of the political spectrum, we agree that freedom is being free to do whatever you want to do to have that liberty. All the big debates in our country today seems to be over just what it means to hurt somebody. The Bible doesn't care about the political right or the political left. The Bible's understanding of freedom is something completely and totally different. That biblical understanding of freedom is this. Being free to live in alignment with how we, you, have been made. To be free to live in alignment with how you have been designed by God unless you know you're here and you don't believe that you were designed or that you were made which means that you came from nothing and you're going to nothing and there's nothing but hopelessness I mean that is one view but if not you don't believe that then you were made you were designed for a reason for a purpose what is it You were made, you were designed for so much more than just the things of this world. You were made, you were designed to glorify God and to enjoy a relationship with him forever. You were designed for joy in a relationship with God. It's what you're looking for. It's why nothing in this world ever seems to satisfy us for very long. We're always seeking more, seeking more. There's sometimes an emptiness within. Your heart is just too big. You were made for so much more. You were designed for that relationship. If I were to put on a pair of water skis and hook up a rope to Pastor Micah's truck and he were to start hauling down Arapahoe on those water skis, what's going to happen? Those water skis are going to disintegrate. I'm going to start to disintegrate. Because that's not the way they were designed. That's not what they were made for. My favorite example is the example of a fish. This comes from dear departed brother, Pastor Tim Keller. And he talks about a fish. Fish are living within the confines and the restrictions of water. 
and the fish has never seen the sunset, and the fish has never seen a sunrise. The fish has never had the opportunity to have the warmth of the sun on their face. So we should go to the lakes and the rivers, the streams and the oceans, and we should liberate the fish and we should set them free. It's not fair that they're stuck within the limitations of the water. Of course, if we do that, what happens? They disintegrate, it's destruction. Because it's not what they were made for, it's not what they were designed for. Fish were designed in such a way to flourish, to be the most free to be who they were meant to be within the water. You were designed to flourish, to be the most free in that relationship with God. That's how the gospel frees us. It frees us from religion, which says it's on you. Religion, which says it's all about you trying to find your way to God, and the gospel is God who came down to find you. As Paul says, God who gave himself, the Son of God gave everything away, lost everything, suffered bitterly died so that you might live with him to have true freedom to be who you were meant to be in relationship the deep joy to enjoy him forever that's first of all the gospel that brings us this true freedom secondly the gospel also brings us in a really real way, not in the fullness of the future, of course, but at least in part, our future life even now. We see some of this in Paul's interaction with the leaders there in Jerusalem, with Peter and James and John and others. Let's look at what he says here in verse 9 and following. Paul writes, when James... And Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is, to the Jewish people. Now look at it, I have to say this. James, this is James, the brother of Christ, who wrote the book of James. James had a brother named Jude, who also was a brother of Christ, that would have been part of this group. He wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament. Then you have Peter. Peter wrote first and second Peter. Peter's right-hand man was Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, really the Gospel of Peter. Then we have John. John wrote the Gospel of John, first, second, and third. John in the book of Revelation. Then we have the Apostle Paul here with them as well. He wrote the book of Romans and first and second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and first and second Thessalonians and Philemon and first and second Timothy and Titus and on and on. And who was Paul's right-hand man? Well, that was Luke. And Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So aside from the Gospel of Matthew and the book of Hebrews, we have the entire canon of the New Testament right here as one, unified. There's an orthodoxy. There's a doctrine of the truth 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I highlight this because there's all sorts of documentaries and articles you can read. And I just saw a documentary on PBS, From Jesus to Christ. And it's all about how early on, you know, there was this guy named Jesus and everyone had these different interpretations and there were different Christianities, plural, this little group and this little group and this little group and this little group. And it took hundreds and hundreds of years, not until the late third century, where finally they got together and they had an orthodox view of who this Jesus was. And that is just ignorant. Paul's writing somewhere around 48 or 49 AD and already we see unity in the gospel. And I love this. It says, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship, this was in part sort of an official working together for the sake of the gospel, but this word fellowship in the Greek, it's koinonia, and it means a deep bond, an intimacy, a love that goes beyond this world. And Remember who Paul was. 14 years before this moment, he is a violent persecutor of the church he was arresting men and women he was beating men and women he was arranging for the execution the murder of men and women and they extend him the right hand of fellowship and they say Paul you are our brother in Jesus Christ would you be able to welcome Paul in your life if he had beaten your brother or arranged for the murder of your friend You see, the power of the gospel to bring unity. They said, you are our brother. This is the language that Jesus used. We are brothers and sisters. You know, my brother Rick, you know, I was there when he was in his fruit of the looms eating bowls of cereal in the morning, right? That's the kind of an intimacy, right? And he's my brother Rick, who's very different from me, different personalities, very different interests, but he's my brother. And I I will do anything for him. I am committed to him because he's my brother. That's how we are to be radically intimate and close and committed to one another. And notice it says that they were going to send Paul out to the Gentiles. They were going to go to the circumcised, the Jewish people. That means all people. And in this way, we see just a foretaste of this glorious day to come in the future, Revelation chapter 7, where the Apostle John gets this vision of what is to come. And he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, and finally all of this division and all of this conflict, and we are one. And we're one how? Before the Lamb on the throne. It's Jesus Christ who unifies. When I go to the country of Honduras, what a great blessing. It's a very different culture from my culture. It's a different language from my language. I don't know what they're saying. Hola! You know, that's about the extent. It's very different socioeconomic levels. It's very different food. Sometimes I eat their food, not so good on my stomach. 
And yet there is a unity, there is a koinonia, the fellowship that's hard to put into human language. They are not citizens of Honduras. I am not a citizen of the United States. We are all citizens of another country. We are all citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That's right now today. And so in the church, because of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, we can have this type of unity in part, even now a foretaste of what is to come. And then finally, the future you see another aspect of this hinted at. It's verse 10. It says verse 11. It's actually the last part of verse 10 where Paul says, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This was the poor in Jerusalem, the Christians there who were undergoing persecution and famine. Remember the poor. Why do we remember the poor? To earn God's love? No, it's not Jesus plus remembering the poor. We remember the poor because God himself who was rich became poor so that we might be rich. God who took on death so that we might have life. God who took on darkness so that you might have light. We remember the poor. We strive to make this world a better place. Now think about it. There's a lot of people who maybe serve the poor or those in need. And I don't like to use labels conservative or progressive or all that. I don't know how helpful that is. But look, we can say that there are people who, who would label themselves as progressive people who are at the front of the parade, beating the drum, championing human rights and making this world a better place and serving those in need. And yet from their secular worldview, what's the future? The sun goes supernova and the earth is destroyed. And ultimately all their work and their efforts are for naught. What's the picture? The story of Scripture. Revelation chapter 21. Paul sees, or rather John sees, a new heavens and a new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, please hear this, behold, look, I am making all things new. This is Jesus speaking in the present tense in the first century. He says the same words in 2023. Jesus is saying, I am already in the process because of my death, the resurrection, the empty tomb. I am already right now in the process of making all things new in this broken world. And how is he doing that? It is through you. It is through us. It means you've never done and you never will do an insignificant thing for Jesus Christ. Even your tiniest, maybe seems like little insignificant acts of faith. Some of you are in a marriage where your spouse maybe mocks you because of your faith. Your faithfulness matters. Some of you students who go to school and you have teachers and maybe your friends who have very different worldviews, worldviews contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your faithfulness matters. All that you do, it is all part of his huge battle scheme, his plan to bring an end to sin and darkness and sorrow and disease and death once and for all. And he uses all of us through the big things, through the littlest thing. 
And that future day of restoration begins even now because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In just a few moments, you're going to come forward, if you are coming forward, to receive bread and wine, the very presence of Christ. And in that moment, that is a physical incarnation of the good news of the gospel. And as you take and eat and take and drink, you get just a sip and a taste of the celebration to come. We sang, this is the feast. I said this before, this is the feast. A feast makes me think of eating a lot and getting really tired and falling asleep on the couch. And our brothers and sisters in Honduras, you know what they say. Not this is the feast in Espanol, but this is the fiesta, the party, the celebration, which has no end, which we celebrate even now, today. The gospel brings true freedom. The gospel brings that future life even in our lives this very day. To Christ alone be all the glory.